from the west side of Charlotte, North Carolina. This is Here for Good. Here for Good. Here for Good. A collection of stories and conversations with the kinfolk of QC Family Tree. 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 Listen in as we seek to awaken the popular imagination to new possibilities of abundance and spark social action for the common good. I'm one of the kinfolk. My name is Helms Gerald. This week's episode is part three of the topic, Raising the Next Generation of Ancestors. We'll talk about all sorts of dreams, ideals, and some practical tips as well. Next week, you can look forward to two different episodes, one of our regular episodes and a mini-sode. The mini-sode is going to be our opportunity to talk about the episodes that we've had thus far and what we think about them. Stay tuned. Reverend Bonnie Osai Fringpong serves as the director of the MBA Explore for the National Benevolent Association of the Christian Church Disciples of Christ. Bonnie joins the MBA team with experience serving several disciples ministries, including the Division of Overseas Ministries, Disciples Peace Fellowship, and the Week of Compassion. Bonnie worked with Church World Service Indonesia and the American Red Cross. Her work throughout all of these agencies has focused on developing and implementing programs to support educational policy, disaster response, citizenship formation, economic justice, and HIV-AIDS prevention and response programs. So I live in Athens, Georgia, where I've lived for about two years. I am new to the South. I am um, married. My spouse is a critical race theorist and philosophy student studying for his PhD at the University of Georgia. I am a parent. I have three kids, five and under. My newest uh, just learned to crawl last night. That's wonderful! (laughs) And also, oh no. Life (laughs) as a quadruped and then as a biped. (laughs) (laughs) Um, One of the things that's really important about who I am and how I identify is that I have a job that I love. Um, I'm one of the lucky ones who has a vocation and I get paid for it. Let me say that differently. I'm one of the lucky ones who gets paid to do what I'm called to do. Mm -hmm. Um, So that I celebrate and lift up as one of the important marks of my identity um, and part of what I try to roll into other parts of my life, empowering others to find meaningful, dignifying, uh, bill-paying work. Mm -hmm. That's what I really want for people. What I think the common good is is collaborative. It also is significantly individual, but not individual in ways that your iPhone or consumer culture will tell you matters. I don't think that kind of individual is the right kind of individual. The kind of individual that I think matters for the common good is someone who has a sense for themselves of uh, rightness, uh, betterness, um, 
and wrongness or less goodness, right? I'm not trying to draw a dualistic world there. I'm just trying to articulate that in order for common good to exist, you have to be somebody. You have to know something and think and live as though that matters. It is consequential. So to be an individual in a community is important for there to be a sense of common good. Mm. Um, Otherwise, there's no good in the common. Mm. Mm -hmm. I also think it's important for that good to withstand deliberation, right? So we should be able to come together and you know knock around the term common good and and collectively have buy-in for what that looks like that's going to generate conflict sometimes Uh, this is something that i've experienced this week in my intentional community where i live Um, and common good has to be robust enough that we can disagree and yet endure Um, so yeah uh, individual, but hopefully not too egoistic. Mm-hmm. I like that. Um, your role with the National Benevolence Association is to arrange the this program, but it's more than a program, these relationships whereby um, young adults can learn from and also teach and um, educate communities of faith um, in site-specific places. So tell me a little bit about your role and how you imagine it relates to this concept of raising the next generation of ancestors. So as the program director for the Explore program, we are building communities of compassion and care. Part of that is establishing intergenerational relationships relationships between institutions and individuals, namely churches or faith-based agencies or nonprofit agencies and individuals who are not typically clients, but maybe volunteers or employers, employees, yeah, employees. Um, We are about building relationships with one another, that is to say young adults working together to almost like to workshop adulting. We're helping young adults mm-hmm. to have a living laboratory of how to live the values that they claim or proclaim in their faith life, but how do they live that out in their work life, in their consumer life, in their uh, family or relations, like intimate relationship lives, um, how they decide where they're going to live and the decisions that are going to make up their lives. How do they make those decisions? Well, hopefully the living laboratory of Explore gives them a chance to try something new and different, to be innovative, um, to experiment with something. And, uh, you know, it's a contained packet, right? It's, a, it's, a, it's 10 months. They can live into an experiment. Uh, Some of us might be able to advise them. My position is very much as an advisor, an advocate, an ally, a resource, a coach. Um, Other people in our program 
serve in that way as well. Um, so the, the point of our program is to give young adults a chance to try something new, try something big, and hopefully establish some bedrock on which they can build the decisions and relationships that will animate their lives. Hmm. Okay, so those relationships include friendships, churches, mentors, you know, older mentors, peers, um, institutional connections with organizations like congregations or our denomination or other agencies. So we want them to have time in this part of their life, this strategic uh, precipice, I think of it as a threshold moment uh, in their early 20s, mid 20s. Um, who are they going to be when they grow up? This is a chance to, to really try something hmm. different. It makes me think of Dr. Walter Brueggemann talks about creating a liturgy of departure always and again. He says always and again we're having to learn our way out of the empire. And so it's this idea of we don't know we don't know the kingdom that we're aiming for. I mean, we have some ideas, we have some ideals, some dreams, some vision, but we haven't experienced it fully. Our call is to experiment with and discipline ourselves to keep practicing a way towards abundance because we don't know what the common, we haven't experienced common good, we haven't experienced abundance to its fullest extent. I mean, have we experienced it in small and large ways? Yes, but not fully. And so then we keep learning, we keep dipping our toes into the water, we keep finding other ways to, to learn and to be formed into a way of abundance which I see as like when I was in when I was in my twenties and I did summers of service and other things like that, like I see that as being a threshold moment, like a very formative moment. And I'm also thinking about how it doesn't stop. Those formations, those disciplines, those practices that is always, always, always again. And I continue to be in this like living lab even now. And where that's hopeful, sometimes it's always like, shoo, I mean, <laughs> like, don't we get a little rest? But um, anyway, so I think, too, like the idea of these interns exposing adults who may have, may be thinking, you know, I've got it, we're good. And then all of a sudden you see these interns who are experimenting and, and taking on the role of lab scientists with their own lives must also kind of make the adults say, oh, yeah, I'm not just a teacher. I'm also a learner. I could talk for a while and go off and on and on um, about some of the relationships that I've seen or things that I've learned from residents or really also, I, I will say this, you know, a big part of what the Explore program focuses on is young adults because the program, we call it a residency. So you have these young adults, they're in these threshold moments, they're deciding who they're going to be when they grow up. Um, but the other part of what we do is working locally with congregations and agencies. We're really trying to equip folks who may not have access to 20-somethings in their life. Folks who have a lot of suppositions or presuppositions, assumptions about 
who young adults are, what they care about, what they want, what they what young adults do and don't do or think about the church. And um, a lot of those assumptions come from places that aren't young adults and certainly don't stand up. One, so one thing about the Explore program is, is really allowing local congregations to learn from young adults because they, they do have those congregations, those church folk have a lot to teach and a lot of faith and wisdom and love to share, but there's a lot they can receive too. And it's nice when I can push back gently with some of those local folks and say, I hear how much you have to give, but let me remind you, these young adults have a lot a lot to offer. So in what ways have you led such that the young people who are a part of this program or other young people in your care have been are raising are being raised into a way that is building the common good? I have to say how much I've benefited from having role models all through my life beyond my parents or my older siblings. So, you know, my life has been really, really enriched by good people who have gone above and beyond basic manners, right? A lot of people have said more than, hi, how are you to me? You know, a lot of them stayed to listen and ask further questions or teach me how to drive or take me for my, to get my passport or, yeah, I mean, raise me. A lot of people who aren't my parents brought me into life. I really want to do that for others. I really feel called and have, whether or not I'm called, I intentionally make choices in my life to try to reflect out a life that others might look at and say, hmm, interesting, right? Hmm, what's going on there? That surprised me. That didn't meet my expectations. So uh, one way that I try to do that is when it's appropriate, I'll tell stories about my life and see if there's wisdom from that that they want to learn from. I'm not too proud to tell people when I've blown it, you know, or when I've made mistakes. Um, I'll tell residents in the program or former residents. This last weekend I was talking to somebody and I was like, look, like everybody needs to get fired from a job, dumped, and go to jail. Like everybody needs to do that. My experience is that getting fired from a job, getting dumped, and going to jail is going to make you a better person. Because I've learned it. So I want to share that with others. I want to take away some of the stigma around Mm. those things, for example. Another thing that we try to do is I live in intentional community. I live in a household of nine people right now. Two families, co-housing. We have five kids, five and under, in our household. And so we do that for specific reasons. My spouse and I decided when we first started dating and then when we, you know, married... We said that we always wanted to live in community. There's a lot of reasons for that, but some of the reasons include that we don't want to be, well, let me say that in terms of building common good. For me, it is a spiritual practice to share and to share a lot of things, right? Like share what's in my refrigerator, share what I'm watching on the couch after my kids are in bed, uh, when I teach my daughters and my son, who's 10 months old, when I when I talk to them about sharing, I want them to see that I mean it. We also have some ground rules that I might tell you, because it's kind of fun and it's something I tell residents when they come to our program, that we have some rules in our house specific to my family and the household, the, the two families together. So one of our rules is that you don't get in trouble for being awesome. 
even if you might get in trouble elsewhere, you might get in trouble for being awesome, but not in our house. So you might go to jail, your teacher might yell at you, you're going to be rewarded at school for following directions. But sometimes you don't follow directions because directions are wrong. Mm-hmm. And so we teach our children and our policy in our house, you don't get in trouble for being awesome. You do sometimes get in trouble for being average, <laughs> by the way. A second rule that we have in our house is we have a no, what do we call it? Fart neutral or fart neutral house. Fart like flatulence. Somebody in my house has really, really active farts and in order to make that person really welcome we had to like say you know what we're not going to acknowledge it we're not nobody has to apologize for it no excuse me nope you live here just fart away we're all in it together right um and so there you'll see that that's about creating a common good right like the most important thing there isn't that somebody made a stinky it's that like you're home Mm-hmm. Right? It's okay. Another rule we have in our house is you can you always share water. So we have a lot going on with water in our house um, because anybody can ask for water from anybody at any time. That's a rule. You never get in trouble for that. And the other rule about water and creating a culture of hospitality in our house um, is that anytime someone offers you water, you have to say yes. Mm. Um, and so... Like, that's just moving towards a place of common good, right? Like, that is how we can demonstrate what abundance might look like or what sufficiency, common good looks mm-hmm. like. So water is important. Um, and the other thing that I would share in terms of what our rules are for a house, I just want to tell you a little bit about um, our cooking culture in my household. Um, so we have four adults in my house right now, so we each take a different night to cook. In a, in a few more years, some of the younger kids will have a chance to either help or take meals for themselves. Um, so for the hospitality rules in our house, anybody can invite anyone at any time for dinner. You do not have to tell the person cooking that there's going to be a guest. It's a courtesy. It's fine. It's good if you do. But like, even if there's going to be three or four guests, like you can just invite them and will always make space and food for them. So the cook knows the cook has, they have to cook more than we need. The other thing about cooking in our house is it doesn't have to be delicious. It only has to be enough for everybody. It has to have basically well-balanced menu and it cannot be burned, Mm. but it, and it has to be on time, but it does not have to be delicious. As long as it's edible, (laughs) then, Nobody can complain. Yes. <laughs> so those are that, that's how we set up in our household. That's how we, we set up culture around cooking. Mm-hmm. And so when I'm talking with Explore residents who, by the way, are building communities together, households together, where they're cooking and preparing meals and planning menus collectively, those are the suggestions that I give them from my experience for naming what they value in terms of hospitality or approaching what common good looks like and then what that might actually mean mm-hmm. when it's not you know uh dreamy and starry-eyed at the beginning when everybody thinks it's going to be perfect but on the night when you come home tired and you forgot to take the 
you know, whatever out of the freezer and it still hasn't thawed and dinner's going to be late and you want to cook it hotter because it's going to cook faster, but really it's just going to burn. Um, like when it gets messy, those like, that's, that's what we are trying to accommodate. Mm-hmm. I love that. Okay. So that's a lot of words. No, I love that. I love it. That is really fun. Those, those rules are really great. I like it a lot. It makes me think, sorry, go ahead. It makes me think to when we, right now we don't currently have anybody living here that we're sharing meals with, but it it reminds me of many a meal. (laughs) 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 A lot of like blob food in Mm -hmm. the bottom of the place. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. (laughs) I call it co-op food. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yep. A lot of soups, (laughs) a lot of curries. Well, you were asking about raising people into a paradigm for the common good. And I was talking a lot about myself uh, in my household and trying to live my life so that it serves as a case study for young adults, maybe, who are looking for models outside the you know, mainstream. I say mainstream with scare quotes around it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I'd like to take a minute and talk about kind of hefty stuff. So I want to talk about... The Explore program has a mandate in part to raise or equip, to equip young adults for leadership in the church and in the world in the 21st century. I happen to think that we live in dark times. Mm -hmm. I think that the world and the church and humans, people, and not probably just people, probably a lot of creation, is hungry for something else than our world has. I think that the 21st century is going to be extremely challenging ethically for people. So in order to equip young adults for leadership across the church and in the world, what do they need to know? What do they need to know, right? I'm talking about tools, hard, transferable, hopefully capitalizable skills. By capitalizable, I mean jobs that you might get paid to do, and I'm not talking Uber, Mm -hmm. right? I'm not talking a gigging economy. I'm talking about worker rights, dignified jobs with a title, right? And protections Mm. that resist or counteract some of the dominant cultural norms, especially that have come to fore under neoliberal political and economic order, okay? So I'm thinking about how to help nice kids coming into the Explore program become foot soldiers for the revolution, Mm. right? Or like, how do we equip young adults with I'm going to use militant language, like an arsenal in your mind, right? Like a way to interpret and respond to systemic injustice that is so entrenched that we can't even see it, right? How do we give young adults the tools to walk by faith and not by sight? Because everything we're looking at is cueing us, is triggering a response that we're going to be fine and my personal safety, happiness, Uh, prettiness is what's most important, but that's not what's most important. And it's not what's going to lead us into a sense of common good or sufficiency or abundance. 
Instead, other things will um, that are going to uh, other the things that will fix what's wrong are dangerous things mm. in our world, right? So, like, love is dangerous, but I mean it like really. <laughs> um, forgiveness is dangerous, but really, like, like truth especially truth to power is going to have the FBI knocking on your door, right? It's going to have you in Facebook jail, (laughs) you Mm -hmm. know, like, do you know what I mean when I say Facebook jail? Yeah. Like how do we give young adults and children, the next generation of ancestors, how do we help them to have a, the mental arsenal to understand and see and name what's wrong? How do we help them have the philosophical, theoretical, and practical skills and tools to to change that, right? So part of it is naming it, ideally resisting it. But then how do we go about remedying it? Right. Right, we need young adults who can do that. But we also, need a generation of leaders who have a specific sort of spiritual gifts of courage right so I talk a lot about courage because what I'm talking about is scary stuff Mm -hmm. to resist what's wrong and by the way I'm not like the most courageous person no, it's like I'm a scared, shrinking, quivering <laughs> ball in the corner under the bed with my sheet over my head. Like I am not the courageous person. Um, and I have it in me to resist those people. But I also have something beneath that. I mean, I try to be courageous, but underneath my courage, what I'm like, where I'm at in my personal journey, and I'm going to be really self, just self revelatory in this, but like, like, I at least know when I'm triggered to be wrong, right? So I need courage, but when I can't be courageous, I can at least be honest with myself and know, wait, I'm being a scared coward mm-hmm. right now. I'm making this about something that it's not. I'm tr- like, I wanna give myself the solace and the comfort and the security and the ego boost to say I'm not wrong. Um, but I can at least diagnose myself now to say, uh, this is me not being awesome. Mm-hmm. And that is what I hope to help generate awareness of in my work and certainly in my relationships in my family or my household or friendships um, is moving toward a place where we can have courage to diagnose and name but I I can't I have to say one more time how important it is to get young adults um, I say young adults because that's my ministry setting but I think it's not just young adults it's any all people of goodwill Um, it's so important for us to read and converse and expose ourselves to the systems right so like i need people to go google or do your research about what like 
some new technologies of anti-oppression are right like some new technology of, technologies of anti-oppression include um emotional labor right mm-hmm. some people hear the term emotional labor they don't know what that means and it turns out it matters um uh what's the other one stacked when you're in a group and um uh what is it like you're in a, a business meeting and you and you know who's next on the list to talk. Yeah, but there's a there's a there's a subtle version of this which privileges the voices of historically oh. oppressed groups. Right. Um, okay. What, I think it's called progressive stack. Mm-hmm. So this is a technology, and I use technology there intentionally because it is a technology, but people don't think of conducting a meeting as needing technologies of communication, right? But it is. People have been using maybe Robert's rules for too long. This is a different kind of technology of communication that like, whoa, what would it do if we learned that, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So I want to have people know the systems, to see the patterns, to understand the shadow side of those patterns, this, and I want them to have tools like executive, like progressive stack tools like the name of uh, emotional labor, tools like, um, oh, I'm gonna, I always keep them in my head, but of course I'm not gonna be able to draw them out right now, but um, I wanna have young adults teach the rest of us what they're doing um, because the systems need changing. Yes. And yeah, and so we need, we need act, we need to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. If I could add one more piece there, Helms, I would say this. Um, I love the idea of raising the next generation of ancestors. And my spouse and I right now, um, we're so happy. I'm so happy he's not. We have reached middle age, right? Like we're at a certain point of our life where some of the things that we were like hungering and thirsting to do, like we've achieved them. Um, and now like we could coast, we're not actually going to be able to coast, but you know, student loans for so long, but, um, we are like not like on the make in the same way that we were 15 years ago. I'm 37. My spouse is 40. Um, what he and I have been reflecting on a lot is how fast systems reproduce themselves. Hmm. 20 years ago was not that different from now. 40 years ago was really not that different from now. 100 years ago, not that different from now. Like the systems stay the same. People just get old and die, Right. right? Right. I want us to be a part of the ancestors have that have come before I want to be a part of generating ancestors yet to be and I also want to be a part of like a rupture in the way things work mm-hmm. right like the poor will always be with us break it <laughs> like, right break that um or aspire to right like be part of communities that lead us to do that well mm-hmm the system just reproduced so fast. Yeah. So when uh, this is, I want I want you to go to alternate routes. <laughs> um, they this new technologies that you're talking about, the uh, new technologies of anti-oppression. Yeah. Alternate routes is just doing it so well, 
And it's something that I haven't gotten into my body yet. Like it's something that I need other people who are peers of mine to get this stuff into their way of being and expose it to me on a very regular basis. And so I just tell everybody, um, so Alternate Roots is an organization that um, supports artists who are in the South who are working for justice. And they have, member, it's a membership organization, but they have this Roots Week, which is like the second week of August. And like every business meeting, everything has like these, these group agreements and they have the stack that you're talking about and they have all of this. I mean, just the way in which they do all the things is just like so freeing and it's a different way of being and I want everybody to be exposed to it because I just feel like if we can take it back and just have it in us then we because it's not in churches it's not in churches (laughs) and so if we can take it back to the churches and maybe they'll all think we're like wild and crazy for a little bit but then we'll be able to kind of be something different which I guess is like the image that Brugman uses of the the ragtag hopers, or the he, whenever he always has a different word for prophet. You know, it's always like either they're a poet, or they're an artist, or they're activist, or whatever it is. But it's always something different, but just something fresh and new. So anyway, I want to um, suggest that to you. Thank you. Uh, one of the residents who's in the program right now just sent me a random text saying, "Ah, basically like Bonnie, how do?" you care for people who hurt you and keep loving and you know it was not directed to me but it was a a rhetorical question about how hard it is and it was so authentic and I just love good old like head thrasher (laughs) um uh songs you know love ballads about about it um it's it's part of my um hymnal of my faith is uh, singing love hurts. Mm-hmm. Okay, Especially I like that. Really loud. Yeah. <laughs> Listening to it really loud and being like, love hurts! Love! <laughs> I won't sing. I shouldn't do it. Although, although, it's not a direct answer to what you were asking, Helms, but I do have a theology of bad, what's that word? Karaoke! Karaoke. karaoke. Yes! Good church is like bad karaoke. Everybody gets up and sings one at a time. I'm not talking one of these little private room karaoke bars. No, like I want everybody up on stage and belting it out till they forget the words and then the crowd cheers and joins in and carries you over. You've got your doo-wop girls, you've got, I want church to be like that. That is <laughs> too funny. I love that.
Starting in June, QC Family Tree families are hitting the road. We're taking folks as close as Cramerton, Salisbury, and Boone, and as far as Folly Beach, Washington, D.C., and Chicago. Our upcoming adventures will include explorations of new places, connection to new people and partners, and learning a lot about history, creation, and each other along the way. Our plans span a lot of miles, and we could use your support. Would you commit to sponsoring a mile for $20? Even better, maybe you could get 20 of your friends to each sponsor a mile for $20. Every little bit helps. Go now to qcfamilytree.org donate and help us get on the road. I've been to Reno, Chicago, Fargo, Minnesota, Buffalo, Toronto, Winslow, Sarasota, Wichita, Tulsa, Ottawa, Oklahoma, Tampa, Panama, Mattawa, La Paloma, Bangor, Baltimore, Salvador, Amarillo, Tocopilla, Baron, Quilla, and Padilla. I'm a killer. I've been everywhere, man. What's the word this week? During this segment, you'll hear our take on the Revised Common Lectionary and the Narrative Lectionary text, looking ahead to the worship, preaching, and teaching moments in your congregations. All right, so the Revised Common Lectionary for this week begins with 1 Samuel chapter 8, where the, the people of Israel gather together, and they tell Samuel, who has become judge over them, that they want to be like the nation. That means for them that they want a king. It hasn't been all that long, of course, since they had a king, and his, his name was Pharaoh, and he treated them harshly. Even though they've been telling themselves that story over and over and over, and this is what the priestly function is to remind them of that story, they have decided that they want a king again. It, sometimes the, the lectionaries will do funny things. They'll cut passages off at interesting points, and that's what happens here today. If you keep reading past verse 10, which is the assigned text, through verse 18, you see what God's warning is to the people. If they, if they go and get the king that they're asking for. And it gets repeated to indicate what's going to happen when they get their king. And there's a phrase that recurs over and over. He will take. The king will take your sons and make them go to war. The king will, will take your daughters to work for him. The king will take your fields and vineyards. And he's going to take one-tenth of your grain. And he's going to take your servants. And the king's going to take... Uh, your flocks, and eventually you're going to wind up being his slaves. He will take, he will take, he will take. So, in essence, what the people are asking for is a return to Egypt. They want a king, they want somebody who's going to take their stuff because they think that's going to make their lives easier in some way. They see that the other nations have that, and for whatever reason, they're longing for it now. So God's response is, you know... You're asking just to go back to Egypt. And the people say, we know that's what we want. We'd rather be in the economy of extraction and exploitation than to be out here scared of the freedom that we have as God's people. So the story of wanting, 
what's not good for you. We experience often, and we need to talk about out loud in the church setting. I'm just seeing a connection between the Genesis text where they wanted what was not good for them, and God knew what was good for them, and they didn't, and that, and or maybe they did, and still wanted what was not good for them anyway. And so then they're driven out of the Garden of Eden because of this wanting of something that really they shouldn't have wanted in the first place. Yeah. I don't understand the pair, the analogy of the treasure in clay jars. What does that mean? <laughs> you got me. Because, <laughs> I mean, it's talking about light and darkness. And then all of a sudden there's like the what the lights in the clay jar well then it can't be seen but then it says so that it may be made clear that this extraordinary power belongs to God and does not come from us I don't know I don't know what else to say about these curious passages so the, the gospel text for this day uh, Jesus's family says that he's out of his mind he's living with this kind of freedom that they can't understand and because of that they think that uh, they need to restrain him they need to to bind him up and to tell him you got to quit doing this you're going to get yourself in trouble you're going to get yourself killed you've lost your mind but once they do that uh, further on in the in the passage Jesus begins to really question bring into question what are those kinship relationships if his mother and brothers are telling him that he's lost his mind, then who are his mothers? Who are who is his mother and who are his brothers? And he says that it's those who do the will of God. Those are the ones who have those kinship connections. Which is probably her. Sometimes I feel like this is a big diss. Like he's being, he's not being very nice to his mama. <laughs> right. But the fact is that she's there, and she's there nearly all the time. So, I don't know, maybe it's not like a shutting the door on mom, but it's like a opening her up to the possibility of kindredness with other folks as well. I don't know. If I was Mary, I probably would have been uber codependent upon my son in that like my entire value of self from the age of what 14 has come from this notion that I am bearing the savior of the world mm. maybe in a way I don't know maybe he was just saying like I'm not the only thing that gives you value mom and not to shut the door, but to say, Mom, look at all these other people right. who are your family, too. Right. The door is open wider than you had imagined. Yeah. yeah. And maybe she wasn't, like, totally and completely just, like, affixed upon him um, and kind of crazy about it. But I don't know. Having a baby at 14 with God, <laughs> that's some crazy-making experience. Mm. And so maybe he's just... He's not being mean to her, but instead he's saying, you know, look at, look at the bigness of the connection that you have, and, and you don't have to solely set your entire value system based upon the fact that you're my mother. Another connection with the gospel text for the week. 
So this is uh, the, the first Samuel text is about economics, right? And the economics of a king is that of the pyramid scheme, where wealth continues to flow upwards all the time. Jesus also paints an economic picture here when his family uh, first comes to restrain him. And he talks about binding the strong man as the, the image um, that he gives. And nobody can enter a strong man's house and take his property unless you first tie him up. This is a hint, it's kind of cryptic language, but it's a hint about the sort of economy that Jesus comes to bring. Um, it's the kind of economy where a strong man, a king or a president or a Caesar or a pharaoh um, gets bound up. Uh, and, and it's the king who has done the plundering. It's the, this is the way that economies are structured. The king does the plundering all the time. But there's, there's sort of the suggestion here that um, the disciples have come to know Jesus so that they can do the bind, his binding and loosing in the world to, uh, to bind up those who would harm or who would extract or who would exploit. And instead to, um, plundering here is really redistributing to take what belongs naturally to the people and to the world and then to redistribute it um, to those folks to whom it rightly belongs and whose labor and whose work and whose homes and whose children and whose families have been exploited by the economics of Pharaoh or of Caesar. Um, we've mentioned the narrative lectionary continues in the Exodus text, the Exodus 20, um, Ten Commandments text, and we've mentioned and posted the links to our uh, neighborhood economics conference notes as well as another presentation that Walter Brueggemann gave that talks about the liturgy of departure and we've talked about how the commandments are not restricting rules but they are um, they're uh, ways of living that provide abundance and also allow us to rely on the provision of God and so we just suggest that you go back and look at those notes if you are in the narrative lectionary and reading from the Exodus text. Psalm 130, a song of waiting. Uh, the last two or three weeks of the Poor People's Campaign are talking about I have a right to live and restoring the moral narrative of the nation. And so perhaps there's a way for you to utilize Psalm 130 to as an intercessory prayer that we're waiting and watching for things to change and waiting for God to redeem us and to restore us to, um, to God's vision of what is right. Thanks for listening to Here for Good. Here for Good. Here for Good. Sponsored by QC Family Tree. 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 Here for Good. Here for Good. I was going to say, I don't want to say it.